Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 15 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our February 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Attenuated psychosis syndrome is a newly proposed diagnosis that is meant to identify patients who have similar but less severe versions of common psychotic symptoms such as hearing voices or having delusional beliefs. The idea is that some of these people will eventually develop a full psychotic disorder and thus, if identified earlier, they could be treated in an attempt to stave off the illness. However, research has shown that the vast majority of patients with attenuated symptoms are unlikely to ever develop a formal psychotic disorder. In a study funded by NIMH, researchers looked at the effect this diagnosis would have if it were used in routine practice. In a sample of 1,257 patients receiving psychiatric treatment in the community, 28% of those without a formal diagnosis of psychotic disorder reported these attenuated psychotic experiences within the past week. These patients tended to have a range of other non-psychotic diagnoses such as depression. The authors conclude that these attenuated symptoms were best viewed as general indicators of psychiatric severity and thus do not identify a unique patient group. The authors argue that if the diagnosis of attenuated psychosis syndrome were widely used in clinics, many more patients could be inappropriately diagnosed with a new psychotic spectrum disorder and be prescribed medications with more risks than benefits. Based on their findings, they believe that diagnosis of attenuated psychosis syndrome in typical clinical practice would not be warranted. Risk of relapse of major depressive disorder is significantly reduced when antidepressant therapy is continued beyond the acute treatment period. In a study sponsored by Pfizer, Investigators examined whether long-term treatment with desvenlafaxine can reduce the risk of relapse compared with placebo. A randomized withdrawal design was used in which adult patients with moderate to severe major depressive disorder who had received 20 weeks of open-label treatment with desvenlafaxine 50 milligrams per day were randomly assigned to receive placebo or desvenlafaxine in a six-month double-blind period. According to the authors, an important strength of the study was that all patients who entered the double-blind phase had responded to open-label treatment at week eight and had demonstrated a continued stable response to desvenlafaxine through week 20 before they were assigned to continue desvenlafaxine or switch to placebo. The primary endpoint was time to relapse after randomization. 
Patients who were switched to placebo during the double-blind period relapsed in a significantly shorter amount of time compared with those who continued taking desvanlafaxine. Patients in the placebo group were twice as likely to relapse as those in the medication group. The authors concluded that long-term continuation treatment with desfenlafaxine 50 mg per day reduced the risk of major depressive disorder relapse in patients who had a stable response through 20 weeks of treatment. One measure of the acceptability of an antipsychotic agent is how many people are still taking it six weeks after starting treatment. In a study funded by Synovian, adults with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder who were not acutely ill were switched from a previous antipsychotic to one of three lorazodone doses. At the end of the six-week study period, 80% of patients remained in the study. When patients did discontinue, 1% did so due to insufficient clinical response. The study demonstrated that switching to lorazodone can be successfully accomplished by starting at 40 mg per day for two weeks, followed by 80 mg per day for two weeks, or by starting at 40 mg per day for one week and then 80 mg per day the second week. Consistent with prior studies of lorazodone, there was no signal for clinically relevant adverse changes in body weight or levels of glucose, insulin, lipids, or prolactin. Mean improvements in body weight and lipids were observed. Movement disorder rating scales did not demonstrate meaningful changes. The incidence of akathisia as an adverse event was 12.5%, and one subject discontinued due to akathisia. The three dosage groups showed no clinically relevant differences in terms of treatment failure. For more details, you can access the full text of this article free via the February Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. Check it out. Service members in contact sport athletes are vulnerable to concussion, which they may experience multiple times during their service or sports career. Concussions or mild traumatic brain injuries are serious and can lead to sleep problems, changes in personality, and cognitive impairment, and can increase the risk for suicide, PTSD, depression, and anxiety. A neurodegenerative disorder called chronic traumatic encephalopathy may also develop in some people. Dr. Elaine Peskind assembled a group of experts in military and sports mild traumatic brain injury to discuss recent research, symptom management, patient education, and prevention. In this commentary, practitioners can learn about the effects of brain injuries how to help patients with a history of concussion, and what can be done to manage and prevent this condition. 
The authors of this article on smoking note that it is a common experience to have subjective sensations of mental slowing when we feel tired or have the blues, and that we often therefore either consciously or unconsciously adopt self-medication behaviors, such as consumption of caffeine, chocolate, or nicotine, to improve our mood or cognitive performance. These behaviors are more evident in psychiatric populations in which clinicians observe wide use of psychostimulant substances, alcohol, and nicotine. In particular, scientific studies show that rates of habitual smoking are significantly higher in patients with mood disorders than in the general population. A possible explanation for the disparity is that nicotine alleviates cognitive deficits that are associated with these disorders. The investigators analyzed the effects of cigarette smoking on neuropsychological performance in a sample of depressed inpatients with major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder and compared neuropsychological test results of smokers and non-smokers. At the beginning of hospitalization, smokers showed significantly better performance in verbal memory, language fluency, and working memory than non-smokers. During the four weeks of hospitalization, the whole group of patients improved in several cognitive domains, with smokers maintaining significantly better performance than non-smokers. The results indicate that cognitive enhancement may be associated with nicotine use in depressed patients with major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder, supporting the idea that smoking may be a form of cognitive self-medication that mediates the association between smoking and mood disorders. The beneficial pro-cognitive effects of nicotine may be linked to its action on specific receptors in brain areas involved in cognitive function, such as the frontal cortex, the hippocampus, and the amygdala. In this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade describes the interaction that can occur between venlafaxine and bupropion. Bupropion can raise blood levels of venlafaxine, which may cause serotonergic and noradrenergic side effects, ranging from restlessness to increased blood pressure. Dr. Andrade discusses possible benefits and dangers of this drug combination, as well as clinical strategies to use if an interaction does occur. A fascinating commentary this month by Robert Post and colleagues argues for a paradigm shift, an accelerated and streamlined process of preliminary clinical identification of children at ultra-high risk for bipolar disorder, followed by low-cost, community-based trials geared toward evaluating the safest preventive treatments and then the safest acute treatments in those who become ill. You'll not want to miss the valuable offering by Joseph Goldberg and Michael Face in this month's ASCP Corner. They have revisited what physicians need to know about MAOI drugs. Mechanisms, efficacy, dosing logistics, adverse effects, the lowdown on tyramine, overdose concerns, and concomitant psychotropics. Another important item is that, in addition to the free article in this issue, we have other free articles that are accessible from the table of contents of several back issues. 
Check out the 2012 May, October, November, and December issues for other free articles. In closing, be sure to visit us online for book reviews, which are now available only online, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and much, much more from the February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.